Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, not hello, hello, Kanuji. <laughs> What's going on? Oh, no much. How are you today? I'm good. It's April second. Did you get any good April Fool's jokes or no? No, I don't think people were in the mood for April Fool's jokes this this year. Me neither. Didn't do any. <clears throat> the jokes on us. The uh, we got a full schedule today. People will only hear one at a time. They can't keep up. I think we're on like number forty. We're gonna do four today. Uh, a lot of smart people want to be on Panic with Friends. First, they thought it was dumb. Now they think they need to be on the show. How are we doing? Are people watching a canoe? You're checking our numbers now. Well, it's actually big in Norway. It's right? really hard to get actual numbers. What you can do is they they put you in a ranking on a list, and I, how that I think they can measure your downloads. But that means you have to pay somebody to to uh, to get that info. Yeah. Well, people people are crying for more. I don't know. So uh, today. Uh, I took some names from the crowd. People wanted me to interview. Oh, cool. So I haven't met Tobias, so we're going to call him a greenback, more of a value guy. See what he's finding out in the market and panic. So, uh, but I'm professional at this, so I'm going to come up with some good questions. Even Sounds good. We're off the cuff. So you ready? I am. So before we get called Tobias, pay it off. One of our portfolio companies is, uh, wrote some copy for me. They're a venture-backed team by us, building the next generation of B2B repayment solutions for student debt. They've built the first federal debt API that helps any fintech or financial institution address student loans within their financial services product. The average borrower saves $3,000 per year from their personalized assessment and enrollment functionality. These tools are especially helpful during this COVID-19 situation as millions of borrowers are losing part of their income or their jobs entirely. Companies using their API can provide immediate relief by enrolling them in income-driven repayment plans and forgiveness options. So uh, hit it up, payitoff.io, P-A-Y-I-T-O-F-F.io. Knut, let's get uh, Tobias on the phone. We'll call him Toby. Toby speaking. Toby! Hey, Howard, how are you? How are you? Where am I calling today? I'm in Los Angeles. Nice. You're hunkered down in LA. Yeah, it's a good place to be, to ride out the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. Otherwise, uh, well, maybe. The, uh, how is that? LA is kind of shut down right now. Yeah, LA shut down. We're in a third week of quarantine. So I'm marooned with three kids at the moment. And is your wife, uh, did she run away? She, she's here as well, but uh, she, she's she's on the asset column, not the uh, liability column. <laughs> so uh, let's give this is panic with friends. You're uh, you've already panicked because you said it's the end of the world, but I know you haven't. So people wanted me to call you and get your take on life in the panic. Talk about panic and then uh, how uh, how we see post end of the world. So before we get into it, let's give take your time and give people a little bit of background about yourself. 
Well, I'm a value investor. I'm a deep value guy. You and I met yep. uh, about five years ago on the set of Bloomberg in New York, and I just I was I just released Deep Value, and I was talking to uh, Tom Keen and the Morning Crew yep. about that. And you you were the next segment after me. So I'm a value guy. I run an ETF called uh, the Acquirers Fund ticker ZIG. It's a long, short, deep value fund. U.S. domestic equities. We look for on the on the long side like takeover targets. And on the short side, you know, junky balance sheet activist short targets. So we're often in the same positions as Chainos and some of the smaller shops like Kerisdale and so on. Um, not necessarily because they're in them. We, we're sort of doing our own research, but we often end up in the same names. So for, for me, this is a you know terrible human toll, but exciting times in the markets because it creates massive dislocations between value and price, which is what we're hunting for. So it's been great to, to buy some really great stuff that wouldn't ordinarily get cheap enough for someone like me to buy. And, and, and on the other side, it's been you know great to pick out some of the junkier shorts and, and get into them. And yeah, so I want to, yeah, that's great. I mean, I knew that, but I wanted to get everybody to explain. And then your background before, and what's the ticker symbol of the, of the ETF for people? It's ZIG, Z-I-G. All right. So, and then give, how did you get into the, what's the background to get into this? So I was an attorney. I was an M&A attorney. I'm Australian. Started out April 2000, right at the very top of the market. Thought I was doing like VC, uh, you know, original dot-com stuff. And mm-hmm. by the time I showed up to work, that had all kind of gone away. Or or the, the, they sort of, the, they knew that that was sort of going away and it just turned into an M&A type job. So I did M&A and then that turned into um you know, doing activist defense because the activists showed up. No one, they were like guys from the 80s who had been quiet for the 90s and had come back again. Nobody knew, they weren't called activists, they were just takeover guys. Mm-hmm. And then there was a private equity boom. I don't know if you remember that. There was like early 2000s through yeah. to kind of the mid 2000s, massive private equity boom. And uh, I just thought if, if it ever, if the market ever gets as cheap as this again, when all of these uh, activist targets sort of work. I'll I'll stop being a lawyer and I'll I'll set up a little investment partnership. So I did that it, when two thousand seven eight nine happened. I set it up in two thousand eight, uh, and then I moved to the states because my wife's from Los Angeles, so we moved here, had kids here, and um, so now I'm based in the states. Wow! And uh, can you talk about how and how much assets is in the in the ETF? So it's brand new. Just launched in May. Uh, we topped out at about 17. We've come back a little bit with this market. I think we're at 13 or 14, depending on where the day is. Um, so that's 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 not big enough, but it's been growing pretty well. We've actually raised assets through this um, downturn, which is great. We raised assets on Friday last week, and uh, there's still good flows and good volume in the ETF. So I'm very optimistic. And this is great from a strategy perspective for us because we've been able to show the, – the big thing that I wanted to be able to show – was when we went through a proper bust, like a 2000, 2002 style bust or a 2007, 2009 style bust, that we wouldn't draw down as much because we have these shorts in here. And the thesis was the shorts will stand up more than their weight in the portfolio. And that's sort of, that's been what has been happening. So I'm, I'm kind of happy with the performance so far. So it's been about a year. Yeah, May 14 was the launch date. So we're about... A month and a half short. And what was the the best idea so far in the initial panic? Uh, I, I bought Berkshire Hathaway when okay. when it got 
you know, it hasn't, we, none of this stuff has worked out yet, but it was one of those occasions where when things get really beaten up, stuff just gets thrown out, babies get thrown out with the bathwater. And Berkshire Hathaway is, as, on the day that I bought it, it was as cheap as it got on May 5th, 2009, which was the absolute bottom of the, the last one. I'm not saying this is the bottom. I've got no idea what's going to happen for, right. for the market, up or down 50%. No idea at all. I'm just saying that on a price-to-book value basis, as imperfect as that measure is, it's not bad for an insurance company as a way of measuring it. And it's a trailing 12-month number, all those things. I know all of that stuff, but it got as cheap as it did on March 5th, 2009, which was close to the absolute bottom. And then even at that depressed price that we were buying it at uh, a few weeks ago, it had still compounded at something like 80% per annum through that entire period, which is a phenomenally high rate of return because it's a very, very good company, compounds very quickly, like still doing sort of mid to high teens most years. And, and at that price that we bought, I think it'll still do kind of mid to high teens for the foreseeable future. We bought Markel. It's kind of like a baby, baby Berkshire, maybe not quite as good, but, but sort of a little bit cheaper. Similar story, compounds really well run by really smart management. Bought some Schwab. Uh, didn't ever think I'd get a chance to buy those sort of names because they tend to be, they're pretty good businesses. Don't get cheap. Hey, under 30 or right around 30? Uh, for Schwab? Yeah. I just have to look exactly what for it is for. Yeah, I was looking at it. I had sold it in the 50s, but uh, I haven't come back to them. What, uh, and then on the short side, what's inter- like? What's the focus? I mean, is there China stuff or is it just leveraged businesses? No, you know, it's not, it's not, there's no kind of macro thesis. We look at it on a bottom up name by name basis, even though what has happened is we've got quite a heavy weighting. We're heavy in two, two sectors at the moment. We've got lots of commercial REITs because the commercial REITs, and I, I think there's a reasonable macro argument to be made there that coming out of this on the other side. Um, well, haven't they, haven't they gotten hammered it. already? They did get hammered, yeah. right? Okay, cool. it, it, it has, but that's part of, like the, that's one of the funny things about shorting is that you shorts are better once they start going down. The problem with shorting on valuation, as everybody knows, is expensive stuff can get much more expensive. And so the time when you want to put your shorts on or the time when it is best to short is once they've started breaking down. And so broken momentum is one of the things that we look for because many of these businesses are funded by raising capital. And so they tell a great story, um, but the financial statements sort of uh, reveal the truth of what's happening in the business, but they're able to keep on raising money because the story, the narrative is so compelling. Yeah, it comes and down to the they, narrative, right? You got to get the narrative right. turn. When that story goes away, then they've got a, they've, you know, that's a vacuum. They need money and they can't get it. And that's when they get some real trouble. They either raise money, you know, they either dilute a lot, which case we win, or they can't raise money and they crash you know, vertically, and then we win that way too. So I, I, that hasn't actually played out. That's a fairly fresh batch of shorts that we've put in. So I'm still waiting to see whether those work out. And how are you raising money? Like, how does it go? Like, what's the smart way to do this for someone who, like, because I love to get into the technicalities of doing this. Eddie Elfenbein did this. I'm going to have him on the right. broadcast. So to geek out for a minute, how, uh, what made you do it this way versus just going to do a, you know, a GPLP thing? Yeah, I am not great at raising money. I just have never been particularly good at that. I, I spend all my time focused on the investment side. But 
you know, I've had some success with the books and I have my own little podcast and my own, uh, you know, Twitter account. So I have a little bit of a profile. And so that means that I have, you know, there are lots of independent RIAs on Twitter who use that as a marketing platform and they're, they're looking for investment ideas too. And so I had had them reaching out because I did have an LP for a while. They just can't invest in that structure. And I'd had managed accounts as well, but that, again, that doesn't really work for them. And I had a few who said, if you will set up uh, an ETF, we can invest into that. We can see that like, that's really easy for us to spread over some accounts. So uh, independent RAAs, if you're listening to this, uh, shout, give me a shout out. I'll tell you how to get into it. You're happy to talk to anybody. And um, so people can enter you on the platform. I guess you can just buy it anywhere. It's a ticker, right? Yeah. So there's, the, the issue is um, you can't get into the wealth management side of many of the wirehouses and many of the big brokers mm-hmm. uh, unless you've got a sufficient track record. You, you know, you need to be, have been around for three to five years, need to have raised 50 to $100 million. Uh, and we're not at that point yet. It's, it's coming up on a year and it's at whatever it is, 13 or $14 million. But that's still, that's still a pretty good that's a pretty good start out of the gates if we keep on raising at that rate and we survive through to the full period, which I think is pretty likely at this stage, mm-hmm. then um, we should be able to get onto those. But as it is now, it's it's only really independents who can buy it and individuals who can go in and buy it. But the big wirehouses can't recommend it to their clients until, they, until you meet these other conditions. Interesting. And... Um what is the hardest part been since doing this? Because this is kind of like a, a startup business yourself. Right. Yeah, it's raising capital is always a challenge. That's Nobody's ever been able to, I think everybody will tell you how hard that is. Um, but the, the other challenge is, you know, value, my style of value, this sort of deep value style has been out of favor for an extended period of time. I don't know if you follow this closely, but value has been, uh, like the worst performing factor of all of the factors. I mean, and then, an and then going into this, it's just fascinating right. with how many smart people are like, now's the time, and this just performed so badly the last month. Yeah, well, it's the, which, is, which is, it's a little bit of a myth that value doesn't draw down as much uh, because what, what, what I have observed is value sells off first for whatever reason value, you know, it just sort of makes sense that the tail end of a bull market tends to be those people who are fearless who will pay up and they'll ride it all the way to the very end. So it's tend to be more momentum growth guys who do the best in the end of a bull market. Mm-hmm. And then the value guys do best at the end of the bear and at the very beginning of the next bull. And so that's sort of what I was trying to, I needed to launch to make sure that we could demonstrate. Here's what we do at the end of, of a bull. Just so folks know what that looks like. Here's what we do through a bust. And here's hopefully we're going to be able to demonstrate what we do when we come out the other side, because I think that's the very best time for value. You get the bulk of the returns for a full cycle happen in the first three to five years of the next bull market. And so that's what I'm trying to, and I just thought it'd be a disaster if you miss that three to five year period, because then you've got to wait for the next part of the cycle to kick off. So I'm, I'm very, very happy. We launched at the right time. I'm very, very happy with the performance so far, but the challenge is that, you know, the performance hasn't been great relative to the market so far. So I have to articulate why that is perfectly normal and why that's, why that's what happens. And, uh, you know, there's such an aversion to value 
because it's been a cycle where, you know, I think that the market sort of goes through these very long cycles. Like 80s was a financial engineering cycle, was leverage buyouts and takeovers. 90s was a tech cycle, was VC and dot-coms. Early 2000s was another financial engineering type cycle. It was, you know, again, private equity and activists. And then the last 10 years has been more of a tech uh, VC cycle, and I think we're about to go back into a financial engineering uh, finance type cycle, which would benefit deep value particularly. And why? Like that's where I'm at odds with this. To take the other side of that is, if financial engineering is, keeps getting us in trouble, whether it was 08 or now there, you know, just the buybacks. What makes how do people trust value in an era of this, especially young people who who may be churned off by the market and just don't want to do the work and do what their friends say? So they're not really in this next generation to be the devil's advocate is, well, I'm just doing what my friend says or my advisor says, or I'm doing 60-40 or 70-30. So how does it ever come back? Yeah, so that's a great question. The, the I wouldn't say that we've gone through, I mean, financial engineering uh, in a, in a pejorative, so I, I shouldn't have said financial engineering. Financial engineering is just sort of messing around with the capital structure yeah. to juice returns, and that happens mm-hmm. all the time. That's constant. Yeah. That's that's whether it's in VC or private equity or public companies. That's just that, that's a staple of the market. And part of being an analyst is being able to look at that and identify it and avoid it to the best of your ability, which is sort of what I try to do. I look for cash-rich balance sheets and companies that generate real cash flows. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what I pro- probably should have said is more of a focus on financial performance mm-hmm. rather than a focus on narrative. So you can, you know, there are many companies and I don't, to, to, just to, I don't mean to pick on Tesla, but Tesla has a very, very compelling story. And, um, and that's, you know, we're, building these cars that are going to be the cars of the future. They're attractive looking cars. They're fun to drive. Um, part of that is just being an electric car. But if you look at the financial statements, they're, they're, they're a disaster. And that is why there's such a wild divergence between, you know, you, you're on Twitter all the time. You see Tesla that chatting to the Tesla Q guys, yeah. bombing on each other all day long. And it can be difficult for someone who's not immersed in it to sort of understand why that argument, I'm not in Tesla or Tesla Q, I'm just pointing out the divergence between it. So the Tesla Q guys are the guys who are digging into the financial statements and saying, look at this, like, it's not funded properly. The financial statements don't make sense. They're really hard to unpack. They're really complicated. They're hard to understand. And on the other side, you've got guys who are saying, well, the story's very compelling. It's growing very quickly, even though that growth seems to have petered out. So that's sort of what I mean by a yep. financial type market where it becomes where value is more important than mm-hmm. the narrative. Yeah, and um, I wonder. No one knows what the trigger is for that. My my trigger is I'm not sure. It'll be hard to get people back excited about stocks in a non-consumer, and maybe it's just the fact that they're just. You know, my thesis is it's been a consumer run, right? Apple, Lulu, yeah, um, sure, and maybe because we can't go try on clothes at Lulu's store or touched, you know, that everybody touches their iPhones and whatever and goes into the Apple store, uh, it, that could be something that switches back to value. 
meaning it doesn't even have to be the financial. It just has to be like, okay, I got to learn these types of businesses because they don't deal with humans, right? They don't have human interaction at the end on the, and it could just be regular old boring businesses that have cash flow and are not sexy, but uh, they don't involve consumers at the end. Because I don't know how malls, like for you, like the commercial real estate short, and I've been watching Simon Property Group, I don't know how they come back. I mean, I'm not saying they go away. I just don't know uh, unless the virus is, is, you know, magically disappears forever. Um, with well, hi- with drive- hindsight bias working the way it is, people just aren't going to forget this. I think that that's right. It takes people a long time to get over the last crash. I mean, the yeah. financials have been cheap for a long period of time because everybody remembers if you're in financials, you're down 90% if you are lucky. And, you know, there were lots of donuts out there through that period of time. Mm-hmm. Now, nobody trusts banks and that's probably, that's still appropriate. You shouldn't trust banks and insurers. You really need to do your work in those things. But I think the driver of what we've seen is more that in the early 2000s, There was this period of time coming off the dot-com bust where value did very, very well as a strategy. There were value investors who were making money and going up while the market itself was falling. That was, and that's, that, that was a, that was an underlying factor. That was a phenomenon. That was an underlying factor thing. If you go and look at the French data, which is available for free, French, who's one of the famous French guys has this Ken French data library. You can go and look at the performance of those things. Value was absolutely ripping through that entire period. And then what happened is, it sounds a little bit paradoxical, but value itself got expensive. So value wasn't good value around about 2007. It was unusually expensive. And growth, which is sort of the other side of value for the sake of this argument, we're not not necessarily, it's not growth necessarily, it's just expensive stocks. But I'll, yeah. I'll tell you why it's core growth in a moment. That was unusually cheap. And so that I think that that... that describes a lot of the reason for why the last decade was so bad for value and so good for growth. And now we're back at that point again where value is unusually expensive and value, sorry, growth is unusually expensive and value is unusually cheap. And what, when that occurs, what tends to follow on from that is a very good period for value and a very rough period for growth. People often take exception to me calling the expensive decile or the expensive 10th portfolio growth because they say, well, it's not growth, it's just expensive. But the reason it's called growth is because that that when it's very expensive, it implies that it must generate a lot of growth. And people like to invest in those stocks because all of the very best performers are always expensive. So if you look back over the last 50 years, like Walmart always been very expensive. Microsoft has basically always been very expensive. All of the best names, everybody knows what they are. They never get cheap. You never get a chance to buy them as a value guy. So that's why people buy those things. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. On balance, it doesn't really work, but it's been a 10-year period where it has worked very well, but it's not the, it's not the usual case. Yeah. Very, it, you know, I, on Stocktoots, I was talking to somebody today, Chewy, I was looking at, you know, the, it's 14, you know, I just am fascinated by this market because we've got this shot over the bow um, warning uh, that a bear market is here, a recession at least, if not uh, something worse than uh than some kind of trauma to trends that were easy for 10, 12 years. And then I'm looking at, you know, just trying to find what's working or just take a look at the world and see what people are hiding out in. And like Chewy popped up as an IPO, whatever, it's $14 billion. I go, well, this may be part of the problem is that we're in a bear market and a company that sells pet stuff 
online in a world where Amazon exists and a hundred other DTC brands or a thousand other pet DTC brands, $14 billion. So I wasn't like giving a buy or sell. I was just like, huh, that's interesting that people find people find that a shelter in this time. And how do you think about it? Cause well, I was been, saying like, I was saying like, how can you own a stock like that other than to rent it? If it's, right. and so someone chimed in, well, it's a $75 billion market. And I'm like, exactly. So they're already, the world's already giving it 20% of the market. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a lot. And, um, you know, it took Amazon a long time to get to their 20, 30% of the market. And Chewy's been given that, valuation today in the middle of a bear market. So either I'm completely confused, which is generally how I am, but I'm always looking at it in that type of context. I don't need to rip apart the balance sheet. I just kind of look at the whole market and go, man, people are really giving this company a lot of credit without even having to dive in. So I have my own little tricks for how I look at markets really quickly, just looking at the amount, you know, just, just market cap wise. So I think, like you said, it's been hard for years for me to like with passion get excited about stocks because everybody's in the same things you know and right. and relatively they don't have to be right like I'll, i i use what i call social relative strength which is i look at the highest relative strength stocks that no one is talking about meaning right. and, and I, I try and project okay like this is a company that eventually people are going to start talking about in social media because it's already in motion and right. it's kind of a strategy that I use for momentum. And it works, I think, pretty well for me because obviously I, I'm so tuned into social. But then um, it just seems like everything that uh, gets discovered really quickly. And, you know, I've just been fascinated by talking to so many people that, like, I respect thinking about stocks and companies from a value perspective. Um, just continue I wouldn't say to be wrong, but just continue to get waylaid by the market. And so I, you know, I, I don't even bother trying to think about it anymore. The only value to me exists in early stage companies where you say, okay, it's two founders. Here's the size of the market. It's a good team, good domain experience. You pick a price, you know, you try and get it like ridiculously low. Um, and you just pin your ears back and, and you, and you take the optionality of time and you invest and hope that the people get smarter and the, the, it's like kind of an option on people. So to me, that still remains the only, even though it's the riskiest end of the totem pole, it seems like it has the most value in a world that's networked and cloud computing, et cetera, et cetera. So to me, value is still at the earliest stage. It still has the most risk. Uh, you give up some liquidity, at least value stocks, you have liquidity. You're wrong. You can change your mind the next day and you're out. Yeah, that's, that's the, that's the, that's the idea. They tend to, a lot of the liquidity dry, disappears, unfortunately in value stocks, but they're still listed. It's not like trying to get out of a, uh, uh an angel style investment. Do, do you have any idea about the hit rate, your own hit rate when you're in? Well, it's a bull market, uh, so it doesn't matter. Price. Yeah, it just yeah. doesn't matter. Like people say, oh, you're good. And I go, well, it's a bull market. Like I'm not. I'm supposed to be good at everything's going up. Uh, I think, you know, now in an era where liquidity completely dries up and you're on your own and all you have is your LPs and your reputation and your network, uh, it gets exciting. That's relative value in my industry, meaning, you know, I'm doing panics with friends because I have time and I have a network to call on people. 
right? And build my network. I feel bad for the people that don't have this ability because that's a terrible bear market to try and build your brand if you never had a brand before. Right. Unless you're selling doom and gloom and the end of the world, or you're saying V recovery. And even if you get it right, no one really cares because everybody expected that. So I think this is going to be a really hard time for, you know, I don't call it value or growth. I just think it's a really hard time for companies that can't do a lot of things. Well, they, first of all, they can't just be cheap because you have passive and S and P investing and you have, you know, the 60, 40 portfolios that are just blindly allocating. They're not picking companies. And then you have the fact that we're in a bear market. So liquidity dries up in general. So, I mean, I kind of dig, that's why I wanted to talk to you. I kind of dig the strategy of, of, um, you know, being a small stock picker. Uh, Right. But the risk is, like you said, like your strategy may not work for a year and then you can't raise money. So, but it's very entrepreneurial. I've thought about it myself. It's just, I don't want the, the psychology of managing people's money. So how do you deal with that? What, like, that's what drove me nuts. Well, I'm in it. So it's all, I'm in it and I'm doing, I'm, it's the only thing I hold. I'm all in it. It's the, I'm just running it like I would run my own money. So for me, it's, uh, and I'm, and you know, because it's an ETF, it's a much lower fee than, than like an LP or a mutual fund or anything like that. It's also, this is just an aside. It's also got a much better tax profile because it's unlike a mutual fund or an LP. You don't get K ones or you don't get the, the yeah. And if people don't like it, they just sell the ETF the next day. And it's always around, and it's trades pretty close to NAV because there's a lead market maker who keeps a pretty tight collar around that. So huh. I think it's it's the best investment vehicle that you can possibly invest in. So if I, you I'm want to manage pretty, money, no, actively. I think it's the, it's the bit, from an investor's perspective. From an investor's perspective, sure, vehicle you can be in. But it's also like you say, if someone gets upset with me, they can just turn it off tomorrow, or they can turn it off right now. Market's open, you just go and tip me out. So, uh, you know, from that perspective, that may, that makes it a risk, but I hate the thought. I also think as an investor, and I hate the thought of trying to pull your money out of an LP and they throw up a gate and so you can't pull it out. We're side-pocketing some of this money. I hate all that behavior. So I just think this is the fairest way of doing it. And I, I'm, I like the structure from an investor's perspective, and I love running it this way because I, I – you know, I, ultimately what I want to do is build a very, very good track record over a very long period of time. And a lower fee sort of helps you do that because it carries and things like that really chop into performance as you go along. And how old are you? How old are you? I'm 40. You're 40. 40. So you want to do this for the rest of your life. And then where, at what size level of an ETF does it get interesting? 80 to 100 on a one or two person shop or? or, or? Yes, yeah, so less than that because, I, because I'm, you know, I run because I'm, I'm a deep value guy at heart, you know, we, every, I run everything basically for free. So I, I break even at about 23 and then at 50, it's making pretty good money for me. And I, I've got low costs. And so I'm, I'll be, if it gets to 50, I'll be over the moon. Anything above that is just, is just absolute, uh, you know, pleasure for me. Got it. And then, uh, so you were classically trained as a lawyer in, in, uh, in Australia. Yeah, I was. I, was uh, I went to law school in Australia, but I practiced in the states. So I practiced in San Francisco, just because of the turn of the market. I did a lot of tech. I was doing a lot of tech acquisition. We had an office in San Francisco, and they were doing. There was not much going on at the time that I got there. I got there just after Google did its reverse Dutch auction, uh-huh. and the basic the only gigs that people were getting, the only sort of startups around were, you know, using Google Maps to make a, a mission burrito 
locator or something like that. And then they'd get aqua hired where oh, we're going to give you a million bucks for the business, but really we just want to hire an engineer who knows, software engineer knows what he's doing. Yep. So a lot of my friends did that. And then what do you, how do you prevent the tricks of the trade? So some guy comes in shorts or, or pulls out 3 million or ETF. Do you just equal, you just have to have a plan the next day to liquidate 3 million worth of the stocks in some proportion? Well, one of the really nice things about an ETF is that, that I don't have to manage the flows. So I only manage what goes, I manage the portfolio as it goes in and then the lead market maker and I have a trade desk run by Phil Buck at Exponential, give those guys a shout out. They, they handle all that stuff. So all of that pressure is off me and I don't have to worry about the mechanics of that stuff. You know, there's all, there's, there's. But you have to worry about the slippage and like at some level you do because it could, they could jack your returns down if they do it sloppily, no? But all these companies are very big liquid companies. Yeah. You know, I'm, you know, they're like $10 billion average on the long side and it's about $8 billion average on the short side. So interesting. I really know, and that's the exponential ETF guys. Yeah, Expo run my trade desk, so they're my so I I just manage the portfolio, and then they manage all of the flows and all that stuff. So we've gone through this period. You know, we've had this period of of rough performance since the start of the year when the market was charging ahead, and we were we were falling behind. And something like fifteen million dollars traded through the ETF without affecting the flows into the ETF. And so from my perspective, you know, as unpleasant as underperforming at all, it didn't impact the day-to-day running of the fund. I wasn't distracted at all from sort of what I wanted to buy or sell. It's so interesting. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting way of the future of some good managers coming back. Like I was talking to Raul Paul and he was saying, well, all the great global macro guys moved into crypto, which could be another reason why value is to struggle. A lot of money that may have been unique and gone back into hedge funds that just went and went to, went to, you know, the global macro guys went into crypto because it's just, that's their job is to get ahead of trends. Why um, do they like crypto? Because it's more, that more classic kind of yeah, um, trend classic following trend and things like that. Work in it. Right. Well, and it's just big trend idea. Like it's big, you know, they, they've always known, he said to hop onto the new things, but I think yeah. also just the shutting down of so many hedge funds over the years just yeah. probably kind of disrupted value as well all the things that hedge funds used to look for just gets thrown away again. I think ETFs are sort of this totally, un, they're, they're unrecognized for what they are and that they haven't really been exploited fully yet. And the reason is that active has not done very well while ETFs have sort of been growing and coming to the forefront of investors' imagination. So these are really good active vehicles because it takes away that thing where the, the, the manager has a big winner and sells the winner. And then you as an investor get those tax flows, which sucks, whether you're in an LP or a mutual fund. You don't get that in an ETF if the ETF is managed properly. So it's going to be, I, I wouldn't be surprised if every single active manager out there eventually sets up an active ETF. Yeah. And what about a mutual fund? Why not a mutual fund? Because they're clunky. It's hard to get in and out. And uh, when you, when you, when you do those, when the manager sells, the investor pays the tax, even if they don't get the flow. Hmm. So for tax reasons, the ETF makes better sense too. It's a ta- tax efficient, capital efficient, and it's much more efficient to get in and out. I, I, it just, I think it's better on every single element. And where's the best place to find information about uh, Zig and yourself? 
Well, I have uh, the website for my firm is acquirersfunds.com, the plural. Mm-hmm. The website for the fund is acquirersfund.com, singular. And then I have a website called acquirersmultiple.com where I have all of my books and a little screener for the kind of stocks that I like to buy. And we, we post articles there multiple times a day and um, we put up the podcast. And so I talk to people on the podcast. You're more than welcome to come on. We'll have a chat about uh, what you're up to. And I, I like to talk to folks from lots of different places just to see, you know, get ideas from those guys. I put them into my models. And I'm on Twitter all day long too. So my ticker on my handle on Twitter is Greenback, G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D. So that's where I hang out. Okay, great. Well, I appreciate your time here. I know uh, it's stressful for everybody, especially with three kids at home. And I follow you on Twitter. So, I mean, I just like the podcast. And, you know, while I've had this time to catch up with people in the, that I don't usually catch up with uh, in terms of different strategies, et cetera. So it's, I think it's really interesting the way the financial industry is, again, a fintech play in a way. You're, not, you're, yeah. part, of, you're part of a platform uh, you're part. You're kind of a, an entrepreneur in this space. It's a high, It's 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 such a like a a bootstrappable idea. Obviously, you're funding this yourself, so it's not like cheap, cheap. That's right. But it's something that someone. This is why I say people need to learn the markets. It's like if you really can can find yourself in the markets. You know, there's so many platforms to obviously try and build a business, and then with social media. And how do you get around licenses and talking on social media? Well, the the rule is I'm just not allowed to discuss the fund or the ticker on social media, not allowed to promote the security at all. So what I do is I just never talk about the security. I just talk about strategies. I talk about names. Um, I talk about things that I'm seeing in the market that I think will influence my strategy, but I never, ever talk about the actual uh, fund itself. So that a lot of people don't know that it's out there. I just, it's a bit of a bummer that I can't share it, but that's why, you know, it's great to go on something like this. It's great to go and do real vision. I have a real vision interview out there um, with my mate, Chris Cole. We sat down for an hour mm-hmm. in Austin and talked value and volatility. That's on YouTube for free. If anybody wants to watch that, you don't have to be a subscriber. Okay. And then I do interviews and things like that. Okay. Well, great. All right. Good luck. Have uh, good luck getting through the uh, COVID and uh, we'll see you on social media. Yeah, thanks, Howard. It's been a lot of fun. You're a great follow on social media, too, on Twitter. Thanks, Toby. Stay well, bye. Cheers. Different take, right? An entrepreneur that's yeah. just fucking a grind. You're, you're marketing, you're, you know, it's hard to keep your, it separate how you're doing versus everybody else. Got a lot of guys with these uh, limey accents on here. What's going on? He's Australian. That's not limey, is it? Oh, it's limey-ish. Throw another shrimp on the barbie. So <laughs> one down, a bunch more to go today. So that's just a different take on uh, life in the markets in 2020. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next on Panic with Friends.